This is the Off Mic Podcast, a radio show about radio life. Here's your host, Drew Dalby. Hello, this is Humble Howard from the Humble and Fred Show. And uh, we're on Sirius XM, channel 168, out of Toronto, but we broadcast every day live to North America and on the internet at humbleandfredradio.com. Now let's go right to the beginning, way back. When did you know that radio was a thing that you, you were interested in? Because you know everybody seems to have a different story as to how they fell in love with this whole thing. When, when did you have the idea that this was a career path? Um, you know, it's funny. I never really uh, had intended for radio to be my career path. I wanted to be a stand-up comic, and I eventually did that for the better part of 10 years, but kind of along the way, being from Moose Jaw at the time, there really wasn't a lot of places that a you know, person, I didn't even know what comedy clubs really were, and there certainly wasn't any place to perform in Moose Jaw. In my last year of high school, I got involved with the radio club or whatever, you know, a bunch of nerds broadcasting into the cafeteria. And I kind of liked it, and just through a weird set of circumstances, I wrote some jokes for the afternoon drive guy at a radio station in Weyburn, and he started using them on the air. And I found it really easy to do. I just took to whatever songs were popular of the day, and I just wrote jokes about them. You know, I made fun, you know, plays on words with song titles. Anyway, through a weird set of circumstances, I got hired at CHAB in Moose Jaw. Uh, the summer uh, I finished high school in 1977. And to be honest, like, I kind of was doing it, I don't know, I just because there was nothing else for me to do to be funny, and I kind of liked it. I met a bunch of young people at that time. The radio station was owned by a company called Moffat Broadcasting, and they had stations in Winnipeg, Calgary, Edmonton, and Vancouver. And the station in Moose Jaw was kind of a training ground for this this company, and a lot of really good radio guys were there at the time, all around, maybe a little older than me, I was 17. Most of the guys were sort of between 19 and 22, and I just fell in love with it. And through uh, being on the radio, I got to sort of exercise a bit of comedic sensibility, and then I you know, I, 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 it's not that I, I shouldn't say it came easy to me. It came easy to me because I loved being around it. So, you know, Tom, you know Malcolm Gladwell often talks about the 10,000 hours. So my first four years of radio, all I did was hang around the radio station like most people. And I, you know, I'm often asked about, did I go to broadcast school? Well, kind of in, in a way I did. I was doing the all-night show, but when I wasn't doing my shift, I was just there all the time. So I put in thousands of hours of just being part of the environment. And... It wasn't, I know you asked the question, when did I think it was going to be a career path for me? I sort of never really did think I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. I just kind of was doing it as a kid and ended up being pretty okay at it. And it just kind of, I kind of got swept along with it. It wasn't until much later that I thought maybe I had better do this for a living. And I, and I can explain that as we go. But initially, I just, it was a pretty neat thing to do. And all the people around me I thought were pretty funny. And I really enjoyed the, the vibe of the place. And I just couldn't get enough of it. It's funny you talk about uh, just spending time at the radio station. It's one thing that I, I find that radio schools these days don't really talk about is how much there is to be learned at a station outside of your shift. I mean, all these two-year, four-year, six-month courses all across the country, you learn more in your first week in a real radio station than you will in two years in any broadcasting school. Do you think maybe that's something that these schools should be saying? Like, do your show, but also stick around, see what other people are doing, see what other people, learn from other people in the building. Well, yeah, no, for sure. I mean, for many years in Toronto, we've had, you know, um, 
tons of interns come through here. They they need 160 hours to graduate from most broadcast schools of uh, internship. I always say that to them, Drew. I always say, you know, you're going to learn more uh, in your first few months at an actual radio station. Not that you don't learn anything in broadcast school, but it's kind of like, always doing aviation on a flight simulator. It's not until you're actually flying the plane that you, where there's some consequence. And that's what being on the real radio, or we'll say outside of school, gives you is there's a, there's an effect to what you're saying versus just, you know, playing in a, in a dead studio somewhere. But, you know, the, the experience in the early days for me was I just found the whole environment interesting and I was curious about everything. You learn about production and you learn about music and you learn about all the other things that go into, you know, being a broadcaster. Plus, I spent all my spare time, you know, with my buddies, you know, getting high and doing bits and going into the studio in the middle of the night and doing parody songs. It was just, I just lived and breathed it. But it wasn't until I, I was really lucky, as I mentioned. I worked in this this sort of a, a broadcast company at the time was a pretty big chain of of stations. And I was working at sort of the smallest station in the chain. And through a strange set of circumstances, it was actually a, the, the, probably the biggest break I ever got. I was doing evenings in Moose Jaw when the national program director for this chain had a layover in Regina and happened to turn the radio on and heard me and hired me from evenings in Moose Jaw to all nights in Vancouver. And... I don't, I don't know what would have happened to me had that not have happened because I, you know, the natural course of events is you go from Moose Jaw maybe to Winnipeg or Regina and you sort of work your way, I'm sorry, Winnipeg or Calgary or Edmonton. But I kind of got to leapfrog all of that. And when I got to Vancouver, that's when I, I actually put my radio career aside. Even though I did the all-night show at a radio station, I basically spent most of my time doing stand-up. So I got immersed in stand-up, and at some point was going to quit. This is a true story. It sounds whenever I tell this story, it sounds fucking made up. <laughs> so I'm doing I'm doing stand-up at a club in Toronto, in Vancouver, and I've been doing it for probably about a year. I'm getting into it again. Work, you know, same with radio. A lot of young comics. All I ever did was talk about comedy. And one night, the program director of the FM station of the AM station I worked at, I was working at, uh, which is now I guess it's uh, now LG seventy three. And Fox was the FM station. And this uh, gentleman came to me after my set. He said, hey, you're pretty funny. Have you ever thought about being in radio? And I recognized him. It was Don Schaefer, who's like a legendary you know, radio manager, great guy. And I said, well, Mr. Schaefer, I do. Uh, I, mean, I am interested in radio. I do the all-night show at the AM station. He said, really? <laughs> so he listened to me a few times on the air. At the time, I was 20, probably 20 and a half years old. And he had had this idea at the time, AM was the big format. All the funny, you know, big personalities were on AM. And FM was like this album-oriented rock playing, you know, deep cuts and talking about the music. And he had an idea to put some personalities on their FM morning show. And he uh, hired me. At the time, I was the uh, youngest person at the radio station. But he, he had this notion to give me a morning show. Wow. So, just, so just shy of 21 years old, after having been in radio less than four years, I was doing the morning show at Fox in Vancouver. Which is, uh, it's, it's a bit of a jump. It was a bit of a jump for me, but what I, I, I had a couple things on my side. I was completely naive. I really didn't understand at the time, you know, I knew it was cool doing mornings, but I really didn't get the whole hierarchy or the org chart of radio and... 
you know, it was funny because, like, you know, I was the youngest person on the show. I, I worked with Carrie. I worked with Carrie Marshall, and I worked with a few other people, and Dave Pratt, and I was doing this morning show at Seabox, and at the same time I was doing stand-up, but just before I got the morning show, I had actually thought about quitting radio and just doing stand-up full-time. Later, I did that, but that was a few years later. So then I, um, do you just want me to meander through my career path? I mean, most people can just wiki this shit, can't they? (laughs) Um, Well, I mean, we've got some some questions along the way. I was going to ask... So your first job is uh, on air in your hometown in Moose Jaw. Your second job is now in a major market, two places where most radio people would kind of say that it it can be tough because in your hometown, you know, there's just that factor of all these people you know that are listening. That can be a little nerve-wracking for some people. And then the major market, some people just get nervous at the sheer volume. But like you said, you sort of were naive to that so were there ever butterflies were you ever worried about any of those things you know yeah i mean i was definitely incredibly nervous going on the air at chab and moose i was a really big radio station at the time it was 800 it could be heard all over saskatchewan it was kind of a cool radio station in the middle of nowhere yeah and i was i was constantly nervous the funny thing about going from uh, the smallest market to the biggest market is I somehow, and, this, and radio people know this, it's universal. All we do, no matter where you are, what stage you are in radio, all you do is complain about how shitty you have it. <laughs> if only have, you know, everyone's like, oh man, I can only get to a bigger station. And what I found out very early in my life was that going on the air in Moose Jaw is exactly like going on the air in Vancouver or Toronto or New York because it's just another microphone in a room that we call a studio, but it's just a room in an office that's got some soundproofing. And, you know, sure, the first, I, I, after about five or six weeks in Vancouver, I remember telling my friends back in Moose I guess they all want to know, like, what's it like? What's it like? I go, it's exactly the same. Everyone hates, the, you know, the music director. Everyone <laughs> thinks they should be picking their own song. <laughs> on and on and on. So I get, so my third station that I work at is Fox, and I'm the morning guy. And very quickly, I kind of, after doing it for less than a couple years, I kind of, I had this epiphany that I really wasn't ready to do mornings in Vancouver. I mean, I thought, you know, I was pretty cocky. I thought I was okay, but I could kind of tell that I needed to to learn. I sort of fell in love with mornings, but I knew somewhere within me that if I was going to be a good morning man, I couldn't stay in Vancouver because I was always going to be the all-night show host that they gave the morning show to. And I got a job offer to go to Calgary, which at the time, everyone in Vancouver I was friends with was, were, were, were like, you're out of your mind. You know, you're, you know, this, you're going to regret this move. This is a, uh, you're going down a market. But I, ironically enough, was offered more money, more money to go to Calgary. And I had been doing a CBC uh, kids show as a character on the, the TV show at the sort of around the same time I was offered to host the TV show in, in Calgary. So for me, it was an opportunity to do a little bit of both. And for the next four years, I... I really got my. I really got a chance to experiment as a morning guy. I could do anything I wanted. Not that I was the big fish in the in the, in the small pond, but I had you know I had some cred coming from Vancouver, and it was going to be my show. It was a brand new radio station. I wasn't the all night show guy anymore. And, and those three or four years were kind of where I, uh, whatever character I've established over my career, it's kind of where I found that out. I. I had to, I, I got to be on my uh, own for the first time, and I wasn't you know I wasn't sort of beholden. It's hard to explain. I'm not sure if I'm doing a very good job, but I got a chance to to just try out anything I ever wanted to do, and I, I kind of found my 
you know, my voice as a, as a radio guy. Well, and they say that's why and, they say that people should go to small markets. It's for exactly that. You know, you can go to a small market out of broadcasting school or whatever it is, and you can just throw stuff at the wall and find what works and develop as a broadcaster to sort of know who you are and what you're good at. It just so happens that for you, going to a small market meant going from Vancouver to Calgary. Right. And at the same time, I kept doing stand-up, and I kept doing some TV. I started doing a lot of TV. And in 1985 and a half or so, I had this uh, other weird little thing. I said, you know, if I'm ever going to see how good I could be as a stand-up, I've got to stop doing radio. At the time, I was doing a television show on CBC. I was running a newspaper column for the Calgary Sun, and I had a pretty good amount of money being paid to me as a 25-year-old to do mornings. But I said, I, I said, screw it. I uh, started working at, at Yuck Yucks. Then I moved to California for four years, and I did nothing but stand-up. Because I, I just wanted to give myself a chance to see what that was like. You don't want the and regrets. I, I, well, I didn't want to regret it, and I thought, it, I'm too young at 25 to say, okay, I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my life. Ironically enough, I ended up doing it for the rest of my life anyway. But <laughs> as I, when, when I said to you about falling in love with radio, and it was, it was being on the road and doing comedy and living in the States and living in Los Angeles, it kind of made me a bit homesick, not just for Canada, but for the process of being on a morning show. I also assessed myself at around age 28, and I said, listen, I'm doing okay. I work all the time. I was headlining in Canada. I was doing some good dates in the States. I was going on stage in L.A., but I really was just one of thousands of guys like me. I didn't have anything unique to offer. I wasn't Sam Kinison. At the time, the big comics were like Sam Kinison and Jim Carrey and, you know, Bobcat Goldflake. I didn't, have a, I didn't really have a hook except I was another, you know, sort of a white Jewish guy telling observational jokes. And around the time that I was getting a little bit lonely for, you know, Canada and, and radio, I got a call from a very good friend of mine, a very fine broadcaster named Jeff Lumby, also from Saskatchewan, Saskatoon. And he said, um, hey, um, the second guy in my show is leaving. Are you interested in getting back into radio? And I said, as a matter of fact, I am. And I had a few more months worth of bookings and stand-up to take care of. And in May of 88, I came back to Canada. And I started working with him on his, his morning show. He was the lead guy. But Jeff's not only one of my best friends, but he's a smart guy. He knew very quickly that we should both kind of share this because I, I had a lot of morning guy experience. And, and that was great. And, and I'll stop now if you want to ask some questions about what you've heard so far or I'll keep meandering through this boring fuck fest that is <laughs> the Humble Howard history. See, I feel like you underestimate it because I feel like, like I'm listening to this and I'm the one doing the interview. And it's, it's fascinating stuff because especially for stand-up, I, I don't know what it is. There just seems to be that natural tie between our industry and stand-up comedy. It's, I, you know, whether it's because everybody who's funny thinks they can be a broadcaster or everybody who's a broadcaster somehow thinks they're funny. You see a lot of guys try and go back and forth between the two of them. To me, it is, it is interesting that you, you went for the comedy thing, even though you were doing so well in Calgary, and, and it just wasn't, I guess, wasn't enough to overwhelm your now desire to do radio. Well, I mean, a couple things happen. I mean, you know, if I'm being authentic, one of the reasons that I wanted to do stand-up is I thought radio guys weren't funny, and for the most part, they're not. <laughs> um, and one of the reasons I came back to radio is because I didn't think... I saw what living in Los Angeles... I, I saw what it meant to make it, and um, I didn't think I had what it took. I mean, I sort of self-assessed. Listen, I've been, I've been continuing to do stand-up my whole life. Even when I got back to Montreal, I did, I've done Just for Laughs, and I've done CBC's Debaters. I mean, I have 
I mean, I'm saying this trying to sound like an asshole. I got a certain amount of cred in the comedy stand-up comedy community because very few radio guys can stand up and do 45. They right. just can't. It's not a skill set they have. But I also assessed myself and thought, you know, the thing that I have that's unique versus my non-uniqueness as a stand-up is, you know, I had been doing, I had been, you know, in a major market radio station. I'd done mornings for a few years. And I thought maybe I should go back to that and see what happens because I thought I needed some security. And I missed, I honestly, I missed Canada. And I thought if I have a chance to, you know, I started thinking, okay, I'm getting close to 30 and, you know, maybe I could sort of reestablish myself as a radio guy. And I, I sort of took the first opportunity that was thrown my way. And it turned out to be a, a pretty important, you know, event in my life. Was it, was it the old riding the bike cliche? Like, did you find any difficulty in getting back into radio after the layoff? Like, not, not getting into the industry, well, but... I, 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 I'm only hesitating because, you know, that's actually... That's a really good question. I don't think I've ever been asked, did I have any... Did it... You know, and, and I'm really... I'm, I'm considering it, is that I've, in all the times I've talked about all this stuff, no one's ever said, did it take you a while to get back into the rhythm? And you know, it did. Now that I think of it, because I hadn't, and I was lucky, because I had a, a guy that was a very good um, quarterback of the show. So for the first few months I was there, I just had to be a funny reactor, which I sort of, you know, was never really my role before, but it kind of gave me a chance to ease back in the rhythm. But because, as I said, Lumby's a really smart guy. He knew I was, you know, a pretty good-sized morning guy before, and I was a decent DJ or whatever. I knew how to back-sell stuff. And so very quickly, after a couple months of getting my sort of equilibrium back and my rhythm back, I started co-hosting the show, meaning, like, he would back-sell songs, or I would, or he would back-sell it and throw to me, and I would set the bit up. And and, and so um, the reason I, it, it is something I never really considered. It did take me a while to kind of... Because there's a rhythm to doing what we do in broadcasting that's different than stand-up. I gotta tell you, my current show, I have tons of comics on the show all the time, and you know what? Not all of them do well on the radio. They just, they, they're so regimented, and here's my material, this is kind of how I present my thing, that when you just throw them stuff, they don't always roll the same way that we do on the radio. Right, they'll have, they'll have their 5 to 10 pre-produced, they know it word for word, they know how to get into it and out of it, but not necessarily how to improv in the middle of it. Yeah, not all of them. I mean, listen, you know, I've, I've worked with lots of great stand-ups that don't do any audience stuff, because that's not their thing. Right. They're really, really good writers, and so they think, okay, I've written this, I want to present it as I've written it. So, I, uh, I, again, I was really lucky. I, I, Jeff's one of my best friends and has all, you know, I've known him for a long time, since Moose Jaw, actually. And so we, I got a chance to kind of get my sea legs back, if you will. I mean, I'm sure there's a better phrase than that. I can't, but I've never actually said that before. But, <laughs> um, so I did that for, from 1988 to the spring of 1989. And it all happened very quickly where the morning show at CFNY, which is now the Edge in Toronto, came open. And the guy that was the program director was another guy I had met in Moose Jaw, a guy who's now the VP of Rogers named Danny Kingsbury. And he uh, thought Jeff and Howard, this was the name of the show, The Breakfast Club or whatever with Jeff and Howard, would be a great morning show in Toronto. And I was like, now that I was back in radio, I thought, you know, fuck all this. I have to go work in the biggest market in the country. <laughs> because the guys that were working in the biggest market in the country were all guys that I had either competed against and frankly thought I was better than. So... Uh, we were, uh, they flew into Montreal, we had a nice lunch, and it was obvious, uh, apparent, 
very quickly that Lumby wasn't interested. He had a great thing going in Montreal. He'd been the morning guy there for like probably three or four years, just making decent coin. And it was apparent that Jeff really wasn't interested. And when uh, they left the meeting, I waited a couple hours and I called Danny when he got back to Toronto. I said, listen, uh, and all three of us have been best friends for almost 35 years. I said, well, Lumby obviously doesn't want this gig, but if you're interested, I'm interested. And he said, oh, we're very interested because I had been the host of a morning show long before Jeff had. And uh, he flew Fred into Montreal and Fred and I spent a couple hours having a beer together. And in the summer of 1989, I came to Toronto and started doing mornings. Was there any interaction with, with Fred before these few beers? Didn't know the I guy. I never even heard of the guy. Didn't know the guy. <laughs> and 26 years later, we're still doing a show together. Was there, like, over the beers, obviously, that's that's where radio people tend to do most of their bonding. <laughs> yeah. Did you guys have an immediate chemistry, or, you know, maybe did it take two, three beers to be like, all right, this guy's not an asshole? Fred always tells the story of me picking him and Kingsbury up at the airport and just driving like a fucking maniac through the streets of Montreal to get back to my apartment. But I always say, you're such a pussy because that's how everyone drives in Montreal. That's just how it happens. Um, but you know what? It, you know, it's hard to say, Drew. It's like, you know, he was going to be it was going to be the Humble and Fred show, but he was the sportscaster. He'd never been the co-host of a morning show. And I just looked at it like from an ego standpoint, if you're going to be in radio, in my mind, I, you know, at that time, I thought, I, I want to see what it's like working in the biggest market in the country. I already worked in Vancouver. I worked in Calgary. But I still thought, I wonder, you know, when you're doing mornings in Toronto, that's, that's pretty much it. So, it's, I mean, we had, like, I like the guy. He made me laugh right away. And he makes me laugh now. It's like a, the greatest relationship I've ever had. You know, I'm talking about a couple of wives, a bunch of girlfriends, maybe some hookers. Um, but, but he made me laugh right away. And we kind of thought, hey, well, let's, we'll give this a shot. But I will say this. We started in August of 89, and almost immediately our show, we fell in with one another. We fell into a, just a natural, self-deprecating rhythm, and we made each other laugh on the air. I remember very early on, we had a couple of moments, like I'm talking week three, where we started, we, we were laughing so hard we couldn't speak like <laughs> during a break. And... Um, and the audience kind of, you see, in, in 1989 in Vancouver, there were you know, a few morning shows that had just sort of started, Brother Jake and Jesse and Gene and Roger, Rick and Marilyn, but there were no, like, we were sort of unique. We were working on an alternative radio station, the music was different, and we were kind of allowed to just fuck around and do whatever we wanted to. Where did Humble come from? You know, it came from the fact, and I, and I, I have spent 35 years wishing I had a better story. <laughs> the, summer I, the, summer, the summer I was 17, uh, there was a program director, an afternoon drive guy at CHAB and Moose who was probably 35 years old, and, but he was like the established veteran, and he was in charge of all us young guys. And I was sort of nervous and pet, not petrified, but I was always nervous. You know, I didn't, it's my first job, I didn't want to piss the guy off. So I didn't say much to him. And every once in a while, he'd walk by me and go, whoa, there's humble Howard Glass, because I, I just didn't talk much. Right. And one night, I, when I was still doing the all-night show, uh, I had to fill in for the after, the evening guy, and he was doing afternoons. And as he's finishing his shift, he said, stand by, Saskatchewan, humble Howard's next. And I was like, cringing. And he turned the microphone off, and he said to me, you know, you could do a lot worse than use that name. And I said, what do you mean? He said, there's a guy in Los Angeles named Humble Harv. He said, but I've never heard of anyone else in the business using Humble as a moniker. And for about six months, everyone else on the air referred to me as that, but I didn't. But a funny thing happened. 
uh, when I got Evenings about six months later, where I became kind of like the, one of the few people on the stations, especially around the province, that people could name because my name was a little bit unusual. And uh, I've been using it ever since. Like, really, I always wish I had a better story. Like, well, I served with a guy in Vietnam <laughs> named Humble, and uh, he saved my life by taking a bullet into his esophagus. He could never speak, but I speak for him. But, in, but instead, it's just some guy started calling you that because you were too chicken shit to talk to him in the hallway. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. I was just a shy little girl, and I couldn't <laughs> say anything. That's actually funnier. Yeah, I was just a little chicken shit pussy at 17. <laughs> Too quiet. I was too quiet. I was very demure. I was a very demure young lady. <laughs> so Hummel and Fred starts to take off. You guys start to get traction. Like you said, you, you develop the chemistry with Fred. You develop the audience that were kind of into what you guys were doing. And uh, and then you kind of took a break for a little while again, didn't you? Uh, well, there's been a, there were a couple breaks. Uh, I get to the station from 89 and 91. It's uh, kind of in turmoil. It's this alternative freak show, and me and Fred are doing this show, and all the uh, the station was trying to figure out an identity. And then I get a job offer to go to uh, CKFM alone, which then later became Mix, which later became Virgin Radio. So I leave. Fred and I have no hard feelings, but they offered me a, a bunch more money, and I wanted to get out of this alternative, you know, n- n- shit show that I was in. And I, uh, but we had good, we had good numbers in the morning, but I just didn't, I didn't, I thought the station was directionless and I needed to go someplace where it didn't seem like it was a college station. So I go to CKFM, it becomes a mix and all this happens really quick. So I came back to Canada in 89, worked at, uh, FM 96, 17 months later, I go to the uh, CFOY in Toronto, less than two years later, I go to CKFM in Toronto. And then 17 months later, a bunch of uh, new orders bought the station. They wanted to, uh, you know, bring some order to the chaos. And they looked at the numbers and said, you know, we need a morning show. And the last thing that ever had any impact was the Humble and Fred show. And so they woo me back. So I come back to CFNY, which is now the, which by that time was the edge, in 1992. So between 89 and 92, I'd worked at uh, one, two, three. This was the, and then this one was the second time. So four different stations in a space of you know, less than four years. And at that point, Fred and I worked together from 1992 to 2005. So we then became, from about 95 to 98, we were the number one morning show, 18 to 34 adults in Toronto. So that was a pretty good run for the Fred man and I. And in 98, they hired uh, Q107, our sort of arch rivals, hired Howard Stern. And we went from first to third, the first book that Stern was in town. And then about... Maybe a half year later, we went back up to second, and we were never number one again while he was on the air. If you're second to Howard Stern, you're still basically first. No, I, I, that's what we used to say, and I was, such a, I was a huge Stern fan, and at the time, we were playing seven songs an hour, and he, was never, he wasn't playing any songs, and you know, we would have a guest on the show, um, you know, some local person, and he'd have, you know, fucking Ryan Reynolds on. So... We uh, always thought, you know, hey, we did, we did, pretty, we we did, we we've done pretty well. If we're second to Stern, he's the biggest morning guy in in uh, North America at the time, and so we did that uh, until nineteen. I'm sorry, two thousand and one, when the company came to us and said, "Hey, guys, how would you like to have a uh, job for the rest of your lives?" And uh, they their thought was that we were getting too old at age forty one and forty four to be the morning show on the edge. Now, they were wrong because, as Stern's proven at age 60, you can still be funny and relevant to guys of all ages it's just as long as, you know, as long as your act is relevant. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not about 
Nobody ever tuned in the radio and went, oh, 40. God, no, not happening. It's about exactly. your content. It's about what you're saying. And, and, and I think, so that's 2001. We're 14 years later, and you're still seeing program directors and general managers and national program directors that are still making the same ridiculous claim that, ah, no, you're too old. You got to go. Well, you look at David Letterman just retired at age 65, and I guarantee you there were still 33-year-olds watching that show thinking that shit was funny. Yeah. I don't care what you say. Basically, we went to, we went to a, a station that was owned by the company. We thought we were going to be talk show guys. It was a chance not to play any music. It was a chance for us to be stern and you know just fucking do whatever we want and talk as long as we want. And uh, it was a great idea. It was a talk radio station aimed at guys, you know, chicks, barbecues, you know, finance, just and, and just having fun and sports. And it was poorly executed. We got a we got a huge we got the biggest offer of our careers to go back to FM radio to another company standard. Uh, that was 2003, and we went there with a five-year no-cut contract. It's the kind of thing every radio guy dreams of. It's like we'll come over, but you're going to pay us for every day this contract's in existence. And after two years on this station, we were just floundering on literally the worst period of our career we were just not ourselves and it was a it was just a bad mix with some really nice people but a really bad place for us to be fred got fired and he had 36 months left on his contract which they paid i got fired a year later and the reason i didn't leave when fred got fired is like i don't know i had i had i wasn't going to quit and not get paid (laughs) and i had bills to pay and they were paying us a lot of money and then a year later i got fired i had 20 I want to say like 27 months left in my contract. And um, that was it. That was the end of the Humble and Fred show until November, I'm sorry, October of 2011, when we reunited to do uh, what we thought was going to just be a podcast. Not just be, but we thought we'll do a podcast and see what happens. And it's funny talking to you today because, as you know, from doing a podcast, there are literally tens of thousands of them. Oh, it's almost impossible to stand out unless you've got some sort of crazy hook. And that, again, apropos, not even of our conversation today, I just happened to check for the first time in a long time, and uh, on the comedy podcast list of iTunes, where, again, there's got to be thousands of them, we have ranked in the top 100 for four years. We're the 87th ranked comedy podcast on iTunes. Well, to be fair, uh, we are the number one radio podcast on iTunes in a category that I just made up. So That's very fly. See, everyone can be number one in something. <laughs> you just got to you spin are, the numbers. You are the number one podcast about radio hosted by Drew from Regina, hands down. <laughs> I will endorse the shit out of that. <laughs> I want to ask you about when, because you, you mentioned that Fred got let go, and then you were there for a year. Now, over this uh, time of you guys doing the show together, obviously you built up a following, you built up a fan base, and uh, at that point, there was the internet, where people were able to voice their displeasure over absolutely any kind of shit that they ever wanted to. Did you find there was any backlash by not leaving when Fred got uh, let go? Oh yeah, it was a shitstorm. Isn't that ridiculous yeah. that people that people can get mad about something like you said? Although they, I, I took a lot of heat. I, I had you know we had a we had been in that time in the market uh, 2005 for 16 years, and you know without uh, other than Stern, you know we were one of the most the best known shows in town. Especially you know it's by far the best known show in town for anyone who would have access to the inner fucking net. So I took a. <laughs> I took a lot of calls, and, and how I faced it, it was actually more than desperation, but it turned out to be the right thing to do, is I didn't deny it. I took calls on the air. Uh, I basically, I, this is a weird thing. I just had this 
brainstorm one day. I gave out my phone number. I gave out my cell phone on the air, and I said, listen, I know a lot of you are upset. Here's my number. If you want to call me, go ahead. And so throughout the day, this was a, uh, an interesting ploy. It, it turned out, it was more, this wasn't what I envisioned it to be, but it turned out to be the greatest thing I could have ever done is I would give people my cell number and they would call and leave. They'd be fucking yelling at me and they'd say, well, well you're probably never going to call me back, blah, 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 blah. So I'd get the caller ID if they didn't leave me their number. And then for a couple hours every afternoon between about 4, 3.30 to 5.30, I'd call people. Say, hey, Drew, it's Humble Howard, and they'd lose their minds. They're like, what? I said, yeah, I, I, you called me this morning. I know you got some questions about Fred and blah, blah, blah. And I said, I'm happy to answer anything. You know, you understand I've got two young kids, and I got a mortgage, and, you know, Fred didn't expect me to quit, blah, blah, blah. And by the time the three-minute phone call was over, they were so, I think, uh, I don't know, surprised or touched or whatever it is that I, I took the time to do it that it turned everybody around. You won them over again? Not everybody. It tur- well, it turned enough people around that basically by the four-month mark of, you know, people being pissed at me, it sort of started to, to die down. And, you know, that kind of gesture, I've often told that story to radio people. You know, it's a simple thing. Like, if you gave out your cell phone number this afternoon and said, you know what, folks, um, you know, I work at a station, but I'm also a guy and I care about my audience. Here's my cell number. If there's something about the show or about the radio station or you have a question about what's going on in the city, feel free to call. I guarantee you the first couple of days, you'll get a ton of calls. I don't know what a ton of calls in Regina would be, but you'll get some calls, let's say. And by and if you do it constantly, it just sounds more impressive than it really is. What I often what I would often do is I would call people back and leave a message for them because around five or five o'clock in the afternoon, most people are getting ready to leave work. So I didn't often even have to talk to them in person. I just left this message. Hey, it's Drew. Got your message. Listen, man, that's a great point about we're playing this song too much. I think so too, but I miss the guy working at a place just like you. Anyway, hope you're listening to more afternoon at four. It blows people's fucking minds. <laughs> Here's why, Drew, because they assume that you or I or anyone on the radio is going to have thousands of calls. Right. But you don't. Rarely. So, I don't know, I've always thought that was kind of a, I sort of stumbled on it in a survival mode. So I was working at the radio station and I could sort of feel the writing on the wall and we had a pretty good show and I had you know a lot of people around me that were really good and I, I felt bad because they, they kind of got fired and at the same time I did and, and uh, I used to walk by my uh, producers and my interns and go, dead man walking dead man walking <laughs> just to be like a dick I, yeah well no i would say listen just don't make it don't anyone make any plans because you know if you're firing fred at some point you're gonna fire me yeah but you two are back together now and and it, so it started as a podcast what was it like did you guys just get together one day and go you know there's this thing now and and decide to, to give it a go or were you were you broke well, like, what what was the impetus for this <laughs> I'd gone back to work at uh, the same company that fired me, and I ended up hosting a, a morning show in Toronto at a station called Boom 97.3. And um, I could tell things were, you know, they were bringing in the consultants and things weren't really clicking. And uh, in the uh, spring of 2011, they let me go along with uh, my co-host, Colleen Rushholm, who's a very fine broadcaster. And um, at the same time, Fred had taken a job with Chorus again, programming a station in Peterborough, also called The Wolf. And uh, he, he was getting tired of going back and forth uh, on the weekends to Toronto and his family. And we sort of started talking about, you know, <laughs> Hubble Howard just sneezed. Um, we started talking about, you know, I knew I was going to get fired. I could feel it. And he didn't want to spend another winter in Peterborough and we thought you know maybe we should try and find out if there's any appetite for us 
and uh, had a couple of talks with some radio people who didn't want anything to do with us. <laughs> and we thought, I had six months of severance. Fred had around the same. We said, well, at the time I also owned a, co-owned a production company that did digital television and corporate videos. And we did some game shows and some reality TV. So I had an office with studio space. And I said, well, why don't we set up a, a radio studio in one of the offices and do a podcast, and he, we were both like, yeah, that's a great idea, and we had a couple of rules. We said, we're going to do it every day. We're not going to do it like some guys do podcasts. They do like, you know, one, and then three weeks later there's another one. We said, we're going to do it every day, and we're going to try and make the studio sound broadcast quality so it doesn't sound like, hey, Humble and Fred are back, and they're broadcasting in your parents' bathroom. <laughs> that's great imaging, though. Well, absolutely. Um, and very quickly, you know, because of our sort of market brand equity, is the best way to put it. We got uh, uh, a lot of people <laughs> excited because at that point it had been six years since we'd done a morning show together and now this was the morning show. As we describe it, it's the show we were always doing when the records were playing. It's all that shit you say to your co-host when your song's on but would be really funny if the audience could hear it. Right, the show the show between the show. Exactly. So that's what we do and, that, and then very quickly we got picked up by Rogers just as a way of supporting us. They put it up on their websites. They gave us advertising and then a bunch of other things happened. We sold the show to some AM stations that ran it. And then a couple and a half years ago, Sirius XM came calling and we thought, well, this, this is where we should be. We should be broadcasting live every day. And it's just been, it's been, you know what? It's funny. We always say this too. It's not the most money I've ever made in radio by a long shot, but it's the best money I ever made in radio because even though we work for Sirius, we don't do our show out of their studio. We've, we've since built another bigger studio. If you ever go to our Facebook page, you'll see pictures of it where we, you know, we basically control our own, we have our own employees, we pay five people a month and we basically just ISDN the show to Sirius and it goes up on the satellite, but we never, we don't have meetings with program directors at the end of the show anymore. You're not getting, you're not getting notes from a consultant at the end of the week. Um, you know what? We get the odd thing. Hey, would you guys mind mentioning this show or that show? But as far as, you know, we go out for lunch with them every few months. They tell us they really love what we're doing. You know, we've brought a, you know, not we brought some credibility to the, the channel. We're on the biggest channel series has in Canada, Canada Laughs. And, you know, like we're basically, you know, we're, we, we try and basically, you know, we try and have, it's our version of what we wanted to do when we were on the, on the radio station at the edge. Because in, in 2000 or 1999, we were the only morning show in North America on that kind of, that kind of radio station that played music. You know, Canada's a lot, I don't, you know this, Drew, but we're way behind when it comes to, well, think about it. Can you name a morning show on terrestrial radio in this country that plays no music? Well, you can't on FM because we don't do that. But I'll tell you what, you're hard-pressed when you go to the States in a major market or even a top 20 market. A market the size of Regina, you would have several shows that just did uh, personality, content-driven radio. Do you think that that's something that Canada needs to get into? Do you think that we need to go that way? Well, let me ask you a question. What kind of music do you play at the Wolf? We're a rock station. Okay, you're a rock station. What would be one of the, give me, um, know, give me three or four of the songs you're likely to play this afternoon on your show. Uh, what do we got? New Foo Fighters, New Glorious Sons, we've got some Metallica, and probably Zeppelin. Okay. There's nobody who's going to listen to you this afternoon that can't program their phone with the songs they want to hear better than they can. But what they can't do, and this is a, uh, one, of the, one of the smartest things, there's two things I'll credit other radio guys I respect. 
two great quotes. One is Alan Cross, who's a you know legendary music guy and a friend of ours, and he said, the problem with radio is they're unprogrammable iPods. And the second thing is a guy named Pat Holiday, who's also a legendary programmer, general manager, and he said, the problem with radio, music radio, is it can be out-programmed by your 15-year-old and her phone. But the one thing you can't do, you can't automate content. So if I'm a, fran- a fan of Drew, which now I am, I'm gonna, oh. you know, I'm gonna be writing you letters and saying, Drew, can you send me a sign my T-shirt? <laughs> I'd do it for um, you. I know you would. Uh, I know you're married. Do you have a kid? I do. Okay. Rather than play, what do you guys play? Seven or eight songs an hour? Uh, the morning show about seven. Later on in the day, we we get up to about ten, maybe twelve. Yeah. Are you trying to tell me that if I'm a fan of your show? That I wouldn't rather hear you talk about, you know, that morning with your kid and, you know, she won't get ready and it's a fucking headache because uh, one of the other kids doesn't want to sit next to her on the bus. And, <laughs> like, that's, a, that's something that's, to me, it used to be said, well, if it's not better than a song, but you know what? It is better than a song because I don't fucking need you. you new, I'm sorry, I haven't heard the new Foo Fighters, but I guarantee you if I put my phone on speaker and hit YouTube, I'm going to have it as faster than you can play it for me. Yeah, more than likely. So, well, so... The, the allure of going to a radio station to f- discover music and, you know, on, you know, on, on classic rock stations, like, you, you know, one of my favorite things is when I hear a guy back sell a song on classic rock by going, you know, there's Lev Zeppelin and, you know, California. You don't think I know that? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you don't think I know the name of the song? Well, another one I hear guys do. Coming up after this uh, commercial break, uh, I'm going to tell you traffic and weather together. Are you kidding me? I've got fucking traffic and weather on my phone. I don't need that from you. <laughs> what I need is a story about that day. Do you have a kid, a boy or a girl? Girl. How old is she? She's one, almost one and a half. Do you understand? How, and you're, how old are you, like 30? 32. Do you understand how many 32-year-olds who have young kids will relate to what you're going through and how many 47-year-olds who used to have one-year-olds who now have 16-year-olds can look back and go, fuck, I remember those days. Man, I'm glad that stage is over, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> like, I can't do that. Then I can't, a song isn't as good as that. And I know consultants or radio people are told that it's not, but I'm here to tell you, you know, authenticity is better than the new Foo Fighters song because I don't need you for it anymore. But I, I, I'm, if you started saying, listen, my daughter this morning said, Daddy, oh, I like Daddy better than Mommy, and you should have seen the look on my wife's face. So let me tell you, hang on a second. You're not going to believe the crap I got and how it made me feel and the funny thing that happened and my wife's look, and I felt sorry for her. Dude, I'm going nowhere with that story. It, it's a bigger hook than anything you can play or say. But if I tell you I got the new Foo Fighters coming up, you're probably like, yeah, whatever. I'll go, cool, I like the new, I like the Foo Fighters. <laughs> I'll go listen to it myself. I mean, yeah, I mean, sure, it's convenient if I'm driving in traffic. I go, yeah, okay, new Foo Fighters, cool. But I'm telling you, the reason that terrestrial radio is, is dying by a thousand cuts is because the safe thing to do is play 12 songs an hour and say, man, we've got these personalities like, what's the point anymore? Like, you know, I mean, I don't want to be the, you know, negative, bitter ex-radio guy, because I'm not. I want to be the, you know, I, I've seen the future. Uh, I'm, um, you know, me and Fred are probably going to be around long enough to benefit from it, but I guarantee you in 10 or 15 years, there won't be a lot of music on FM radio. 
because it's just an unnecessary and it's inconvenient. As Alan said, it's an unprogrammable iPod. If you were in the car with me right now and you said, hey, Howard, have you heard that new Foo Fighters song? I go, fuck, I love Dave Grohl. And you go, hang on a second. And whether, if, you, if you've got like an old school car and doesn't have Bluetooth for your radio, you're certainly going to have an auxiliary cable. And by the time we get to the next light, the new Foo Fighters song is playing on our, on, I, use, I, I all call it, on Howard and Drew radio in that car. <laughs> but what I can't get from that is a story from a guy that I relate to or a woman on the air telling me something, you know, you know what kids are told constantly in radio college? Don't talk about yourself. And they, they, they come to us and they, they're our interns. They go, oh, all our instructors say, don't tell stories about yourself. And I go, well, then, then what are you telling stories about? What else is there? You know, if I hear one more rock station or a pop station or an urban station say, coming up, the boom buzz, the entertainment report. You know, because consultants have found that statistically people, one of the things they like hearing about is entertainment. The reason they do, they, they much rather hear about Drew's one-year-old, but most people, you know, they don't count that as, as they, they think hearing about Kim Kardashian is what people want. They fucking don't. I used to have to do, when I was in Lloydminster doing mornings, every now and again, if the midday guy was out, I'd have to do a stretch. So I'd have to do the first two hours of his show uh, at the tail end of my show. And he had a bit put there by the station, put there by management, called Tales from the Tabloid. And that was he was supposed to talk about the Kardashian story of the day or whatever the fuck you wanted to talk about. And when I had to fill it, I had no interest in, in talking about any of that stuff. So I would literally grab a tabloid, like the, the, the rag in the aisle at the grocery store, and I would read about Bat Boy or whatever the hell was and the actual, like, out-of-this-world tabloids. And I got in trouble for it pretty much every time. Listen, I don't fault any of these people. You know, they're just trying to do what everyone else is doing. They're not trying to keep your job and not take too many chances and, you know, not let people talk too much. I mean, I don't know why I'm paying a guy like you who's obviously able to converse and has a brain and has a sensibility, you know, to sit there telling me, you know, you get to break three times in a, you know, if you're playing 10 or 12 songs an hour, dude, and not a whole lot of time for Drew. I'm not trying to be like the, the, you know, the ghost of Christmas future where everything is fucked. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you, one thing I've learned in the last four years is that content, authentic content, is all people want. You know, we had Peter Mansbridge on about a week and a half ago for an hour and 20 minutes. And it was compelling and interesting. And, you know, after, when you have somebody in that long, they relax, they tell stories and you know, versus on a terrestrial radio station, you know, even a talk station, he'd be on for five or six or a seven-minute segment. But at one point, about this, you know, and it's what Stern does. I'm not comparing us to Stern. I always tell people that. But when Stern has, you know, Whoopi Goldberg on, he talks to her for an hour and 35 minutes. You know, who's going to turn that off? No one's sitting there going, what's the weather like? What about my community? No one gives a shit. <laughs> if it's compelling... You know, we had Don Cherry on last week for 45 minutes. We had Strombo on, who's an old, you know, CFNY buddy of ours, but Strombo was on for an hour. And when those things are going on, no one's sitting there going, oh, geez, I, I, I wish they'd play a song. You know, I remember interview interviewing a lot of big name pop stars, you know, whether it's Dave Grohl or Alex Lyson or whoever. And when we were on the edge, we played six or seven songs an hour, and we'd have Alex on or someone like Dave Grohl, and we'd talk to him for three or four minutes, because our maximum was five, play one of their songs, 
talk again for a couple minutes and then say goodbye. Now, who in their right mind on an alternative modern rock station in 1997 wouldn't want to speak to the former drummer, at that time he was more famous for that, the former drummer of Nirvana in lieu of some fucking songs? And we used to, we used to, it used to drive us crazy because even then we realized, man, if we could just talk to Dave Grohl straight for, I don't know, 10 minutes, wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't it be better than five? Wouldn't it be better than, well, Dave, thanks for coming in. Uh, now we're going to go back to playing some Soundgarden and shit. Yeah. We've talked about, you know, not having uh, as hands-on with the management. We've talked about the ability to focus more on the content and the authenticity. Are there any other major differences for you having experienced so much terrestrial radio to now being on satellite? Are there any other major differences that you can speak to? I can give you a couple you know, you did mornings, and most people listening have heard the morning show rule. You know, one topic per break, or, you know, you know, don't go off on a tangent. And the analogy I always use is if you were, you know, if I was in Saskatchewan and you and I, you know, you invited me over to have dinner and we had some other radio people there. There was, you know, six or seven people sitting around having a conversation. Well, conversation isn't just one topic at a time. And, and real conversations are, they go off on tangents. So one of the things it took a long time for me to get used to the first time around when we did talk radio, and now that I've been doing you know thousands of hours of it over the last four years, is sometimes I'm uh, when we go off on a tangent, that old ra- terrestrial radio bell goes off, and I'm like, oh, sh- you know, should we be going in this direction? Weren't we just talking about Jose Bautista? But the nice thing is, you can be talking about Jose Bautista, and then someone can say, yeah, but his fucking beard is weird. And then you can go off on a 10-minute tangent about guys with shitty beards, and why does everyone look like a Viking? And then, oh yeah, and then, so my, my job as the sort of quarterback of the show is like, okay, okay, now when we were talking about Bautista, I think it was about an hour ago we were talking about Bautista, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, bring it back to so the center. But that's, that's kind of a neat thing, and, and that's why our show... Even though we plan stuff to talk about every day, and we have guests, and we have bits, you know, sometimes at the end of the show, I'll look down at my list or the computer, and I'll think, shit, we didn't even get to half this stuff today, because sometimes in real conversations, other things come up, and you, it turns out that other thing was better than the bit you had sort of planned. The other big difference, and you and I talked a little bit about this before we got in the air, is the idea that I'm on an explicit channel. I spent my entire life not swearing on the air. So the first few weeks to months of doing just the podcast, it was like a fuck festival. (laughs) It really was. It was like, and we would have a lot of our first few guests were former broadcasters and we're all just saying fuck into a microphone. It just seemed absurd. Right. But what's happened over time is, you know, if you and I were sitting around with our wives or girlfriends, you know, I'd say that Fred and I swear about that rate. Like, we don't go out of our way anymore, and if it comes up in natural conversation, we are just so used to it not being a a big issue. That I would think that if we swore at a furious rate in the first few months, over the last few months to half a year, we've probably cut way back, only because it's not really necessary anymore. Yeah, you know, if it it feels right to say, do you have your fucking mind? Then we'll say it. But... It's also guest-specific. We didn't swear once when Peter Mansbridge was in the studio. I feel like I would have more trouble swearing in front of Peter Mansbridge than my own mother. 100%. Like, or same with Cherry. I mean, just depend. Because here's the... And, it's, and we don't even talk about it. We just don't want to make that person feel uncomfortable. Right. Because Mansbridge has got CBC people, you know to answer to and Don Cherry's are you know he's a grandfather he's 80 years old when Anne Murray was in the studio um, 
we didn't. She was in the studio for a freaking hour, and she got mad at me because I hadn't had a colonoscopy. And I'm like, I mean, the only thing I swore at was at one point I was what made her laugh. I go, wait a second, am I getting shit from Canada's snowbird about not having? <laughs> but uh, so it depends on who's in the studio, where we'll basically just turn the tap off. Right. So that's probably the biggest difference is that day-to-day when we're just having our regular raps with our regular folks, you know, when we have musicians in, if it comes up, and, you know, oftentimes, or comics, when comics are in, it's kind of fun to have Andy Kindler or Greg Proops or, you know, Gilbert Gottfried, you know, swear, because that's part of their persona, or part of, you know, in the, in the course of conversation, I should say. And Yeah, you don't want to give Gottfried the full green light. Yeah, you know, he's not the best interview, to be honest with you. I've had him on a couple times, and he's just too, he go, he's too um, scattered. Uh, I will say this, Andy, Andy Kindler is one of my favorites. Greg Proops is one of my favorites. American comics tend to do really well with us because they're, they're just so used to being on. And there's a, a few Canadian comics that we really love having on. Because we're a comedy channel, we tend to have sort of a stable of guys that we, we get on. Not necessarily because we're a comedy channel, but it, it seems to make it, it, it makes sense, and it sort of keeps serious happy. And but we have uh, obscure musical acts, we have big musical acts. You know, we you know we ha- we probably have a guest pretty much every day. Although some of our favorite shows is when it's not there's nobody except the, the bunch of us because we have like a producer, a secondary producer, and a bunch of interns. So at any given time, like Friday, uh, there might have been ten, twelve people in that studio. Does it get crowded? Do you, do you ever find, or, or does everybody kind of know there's you and Fred, and then when you're brought in otherwise, then you come in? That's it. Okay. Um, you know, all the interns know that unless I call them over, that way, you know, they, they're not, you know, they just know this, they're not going to chirp in. The bulk of the conversation is me and Fred. And the secondary, third person would be our producer, Eileen, who's off on mat leave. And the fourth person is our other producer. His name is Phil Hong, and he is like the Chinese Andy Kaufman. He's the most brilliant guy <laughs> who doesn't know he's funny that I've ever met, ever met. This guy's fucking insane, but the shit that comes out of his mouth is amazing. And then, you know, whoever else happens to be in the studio. So there were a lot of people in that studio Friday that never spoke on the microphone. They just, you know, we're like a, a drop-in center for fans. But but it's not, you wouldn't, if you listen to the show, it doesn't sound like a morning zoo. It sounds more like, like we're having this conversation now. So I want to wrap things up. Uh, it's been great. Thank I know, God, I, I'm so bored with myself. I was going to say, I knew that was coming because at the beginning, before we talked on the air and during the show a few times, you've talked about how you hate telling your story. I appreciate that you did it. It is a fascinating story and, and got to talk about some very cool things. Uh, the one thing that I like to do on every episode, because we have a lot of listeners that are in radio school or maybe at that first small market job, do you have any advice as someone who's gone through so many stations and so many markets for people who are getting in or getting started in the industry? If I could call it down into one sort of overriding thought is I would spend all your effort on learning to tell great stories. And don't be afraid that to make those stories uh, about you in a way that relates to other people. And, you know, that's basically the biggest lesson I've learned. And I know I've, I remember having this fucking fight with a consultant from Los Angeles telling me, okay, you can tell the story about yourself, but don't say I. I'll say you. Like, you know. I said, but it's not about that person. It's about me and something that happened with me and my daughter. So how am I supposed to fucking say, well, you know when this happens with you and your daughter? It didn't. It happened to me. But if it's a relatable story or entertaining or funny or all three once in a while, then it's a great story. If it happens to be about you, then all the better. Because if I know one thing, if I, if I, the more I get to know who you are, 
if I can say to my friends, man, I listen to this guy, Drew. You know, he's he's he's, he's a young guy. He's got a one-and-a-half-year-old. He was telling this story the other day about her, you know, taking a shit, but the diaper didn't work. I'm telling you, it was great. I feel like I know the guy. That's the biggest compliment you can get. That happened this morning, actually. It was what, a, you, it, you you were wearing <laughs> wait a minute, you were wearing a diaper or your daughter the was? daughter the daughter right right through the diaper right through the sleeper and my wife managed to time it perfectly to go hey can you can you change uh, our daughter I think she just had a poop so I grab her yeah throw her on the couch and go ah oh, for fuck's sake and you know what every parent who's either got a young child or has ever had a young child has played that game on their partner. <laughs> oh, honey, I'm, I'm, they, they look over and they can see some of that, something seeping or they can tell. And they go, oh, honey, I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just doing a thing. I'm on the phone with the accountant. Can you just change it? So I got to be honest with you, that, that would be the best story you could tell today. Oh, it's happening. Way better than, <laughs> way better than some inside scoop on some shit I could look up on my phone. Did you know Guns N' Roses is getting together and Starbucks hates Christmas? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like are you, like no. By the way, there's nothing wrong with talking about the Starbucks Christmas thing, right? Because because you look and go, well, everyone's going to be talking about it. But if you talk about it to make it relatable, you better have some Drew take on it, you know. And I, I used to be told, well, you know, you know, have, take a stand, but make sure it's the popular one. But I got to tell you, sometimes <laughs> not taking. You ever heard that? Or well, take a stand, but make sure it's what most of the audience is thinking. Well, yeah, I, tell you. I, I do some, some rants on my show, yeah. and I've, I've heard that exact advice before, and I just, I remember looking back like I was staring at a fucking Betamax, like, what? Yeah, well, I'm going to tell you, think about what people recall. It's not always the popular stand. If you can make an unpopular stand funny, then they'll remember it. I'll give you a quick example, and I'm going to let you go. So we had these women on our show, and they had some cockamamie idea about reuniting dogs with their litter mates. And they were talking for about 10 minutes, and I was like trying to get my fucking head around it. And I finally said, first of all, I couldn't understand why they'd want to and why the dogs give a shit. And they were being these two very esoteric, sort of former hippy-dippy chicks. And I finally said, okay, when you're not doing this bullshit business, what, what, do you, what do you really do? And they said, well, you know, we're both, we're both mothers, which, as you know, is the most important job in the world. And I said, is it, is it really? <laughs> and, I, and, then, and the whole thing became about, is motherhood really the most important job? Because, you know, I don't, and then I got so much reaction to that because it was just a stupid thing to say, including my girlfriend at the time, who was horrified by me saying it. But it became kind of a running gag on the show that I didn't think mothers were all that important. <laughs> but the point is, who fucking cares? It was just, I just took a stand on this, and I'm just being, that's not even a great example now that I think of it, but it's an example of, you don't always have to like everything everyone else likes to make it memorable. It's easy to say the Kardashians are stupid, but I'll tell you what, and it's easy to say Donald, Donald Trump is a, a nut who is a, a misogynist, blah, blah, blah. But it, if you, you know, one of our, you know, and it's a good take to, I always think it's a good take. I look at it and go, why is Donald, Pop, Donald Trump popular? And, and, and I like the discussion of, yeah, I think he's crazy, but you know what? A lot of people love him. And don't be surprised if he could become president. Oh, no, there's no way. I go, well. But you know, one day there was a guy that used to make m movies with monkeys, and that was Ronald Reagan. He's he got to be president. So all I'm saying is, you know, take a stand. It doesn't always have to be, and because people expect you to go, oh man, the Trump's a fucking idiot. Well, okay, I, I've heard that before. It's pretty basic stuff. And now I'm just rambling. I have, you know, obviously this, is, this will give you an idea of how little I have to do for the rest of the day. <laughs> Humble Howard, thank you very much for your time, man. It's been a lot of fun. Last thing we do on the show. Uh, is and you're gonna love this because we were just talking about why would you fucking waste time with with music? Uh, we always finish with a song picked by our guests. We call it the spin of the week. So, do you want to pick a song? Um, 
Sure. I'm trying to think of a song that I've been listening to lately that, um, how about this? Frank Turner. And it's a song called Recovery. Blacking in and out in a strange flat in East London. Somebody I don't really know just gave me something to help settle me down and to stop me from always thinking about you. And you know your life is heading in a questionable direction when you're up for days of strangers and you can't remember anything except the way you sounded when you told me you didn't know what I should do. Like every boring blue song, I get swallowed by the pain And so I fumble for your figure in the darkness Just to make it go away But you're not lying there any longer And I know that that's my fault So I've been pounding on the floor And I've been crawling up the walls And I've been dipping in my darkness With serotonin boosters Cider and some kind of smelling salts Let's just tell them that we met in jail And that's a story that I'm sticking to Like a stony-faced accomplice But tonight I need to hear some truth And I'm never getting through this Yeah, you once sent me a letter that said If you're lost at sea Close your eyes and catch a time, my dear And only think of me Well, darling, now I'm sinking And I'm as lost and lost could be And I was hoping you could drag me up And down here towards my recovery Sign you just a subtle little glimmer, some suggestion that you'd have me if I could only make me better, then I would stand a little stronger as I walk a little taller all the time. Because I know you are a cynic, but I think I can convince you that because broken people can get better if they really want to, or at least that's what I have to tell myself if I am hoping to for listening to the Off Mic Podcast. Follow the show online at Off Mic Podcast on Twitter or like the show on Facebook. If there's a guest you'd like to hear on the show, email Podcast at gmail.com. The Off Mic Podcast is a part of the Dolby Radio Network.